One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Browns at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, October 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 47. Game Overview by Pappy. David Njoku and Kyle Pitts are mispriced for their role and matchup. Both ground games are set up to succeed, but both backfields are timeshares. Both teams play slow. Both QBs are cheap and use their legs. Amari Cooper and Drake London are clear alpha wide receivers on teams that don't want to throw. How Cleveland will try to win. After taking a merciless memeing for trading the house to acquire a QB who was expected to be suspended for the season, then guaranteeing to pay that QB as much as First Energy Stadium costs, the Browns are a historic collapse against the freaking Jets from being 3-0. Now who's laughing, internet? The caveat? The Browns have played Baker Mayfield, Joe Flacco, and Mitch Trubisky. Not exactly a murderer's row, but this week won't feature a massive upgrade when they visit Atlanta to take on Marcus Mariota. How have Kevin Stefanski's Browns been successful? Running the damn ball. The Browns rank first in carries by their running backs after ranking second and third the past two years and are smashing teams with outside runs, ranking in the top 10 in both right end and left end yards gained. They aren't too shabby up the middle either, ranking 10th in middle yards gained. It's never been a secret how Stefanski's Browns want to win, making Cleveland's game plan one of the simplest to predict from week to week. They're going to try and win on the ground. The Falcons have been beaten through the air, 24th in DVOA, and trampled on the ground, 27th in DVOA. The Falcons were just slammed for 4.9 yards per carry against the not-so-scary running back crew of Rashad Penny, DJ Dallas, and Kenneth Walker after being stomped week one for 7.9 yards per carry by the Saints' mix of Kamara, Ingram, and Hill. Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, and the Browns' running attack is the best ground game the Falcons will have seen this season, and there is nothing about this matchup that should tilt the Browns away from running the ball. The Browns play slow, 28th in total pace, but they are closer to an average pace team in competitive games, 18th in situation neutral pace. While the Browns play slightly below average in pace in close games, they are one of the most willing teams to fall on the ball if they get a lead. This makes sense from a strategy standpoint for a team that wants to rely on an elite ground attack and limit their QB's opportunities to make mistakes. Until Deshaun Watson returns, maybe not even then, Kevin Stefanski isn't going to be concerned with playing quickly. How Atlanta will try to win. Is it just me, or do the 1-2 total point differential of minus 1 Falcons feel a lot like last year's Lions? A young offense with talented new players, a journeyman QB who is written off by the team that drafted him high, and a coach who is trying to install a biting knees attitude. The Lions, the Falcons, have played three close games, 27-23, 27-31, and 26-27, and come into this game having scored a surprising 80 points, third in the NFC trailing the Lions and Eagles. This is an offense that was expected to struggle all year. Having spent the better part of the past decade with the Titans, it's not a secret how Arthur Smith wants to win games. Marcus Mariota has been limited to 20, 26, and 33 attempts, and their lone win came in week three in the 20-attempt game. The Falcons aren't going to dial up many pass plays, especially if they're winning, leaving all their skill players to rely on efficiency over volume. The Browns have been below average defending the pass, 19th in DVOA, and poor against the run, 24th in DVOA. Arthur Smith didn't need a reason to run 
and the Browns' defense certainly isn't going to deter him. Miles Garrett almost killed himself, but apparently wants to play this weekend. He is said to have suffered a shoulder and bicep strain during a one-car accident. Even if he plays, it doesn't sound like he'll be 100%, and if he sits, his loss will be a substantial blow to the Browns' defense. Garrett gutting it out less than 100% might be the best scenario for the Falcons, since he is a fierce pass rusher but a minus run defender. There is a chance he will get pushed around even more at less than full health. The Falcons play slow in all situations, 22nd total pace, including during close games, 24th situation neutral pace. The Falcons have played three tight games and have shown that their tendency is to play slow if possible. This philosophy makes sense with Arthur Smith's run-the-damn-ball mentality and serves to limit Marcus Mariota's ability to make mistakes. Expect the Falcons to come out with their typical deliberate approach, running the ball for as long as they can keep the game close. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a surprisingly high total, 48, that was bet up from an early week line of 46.5. That's an interesting line move for two teams that can be confidently predicted to run the ball and play slowly. Even though both teams are expected to take their time and run the ball, both teams can also be expected to succeed in their preferred approach. The most likely game flow has both teams running the ball down each other's throats and using their success on the ground to set up downfield shots. We can confidently predict both teams' game plans, so the most likely scenario here feels highly likely. Expect a competitive game that finishes around the current total, a lot of running from both sides, with the winner determined by a late field goal. Bills at Ravens. Kickoff Sunday, October 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 51. Game Overview by Hilo. The all-eyes-on-me game this week. Two of the top six teams in pass rate over expectation through three weeks. Baltimore's elite per-play production, first in yards per play, offsets an offensive profile that appears low volume on the surface, only 55.3 plays per game. Buffalo has run a massive 71 offensive plays per game and pass at the fourth highest rate overall. Keep a trained eye on the injury reports from each team as the week progresses. There are some big names on both reports to start the week. Josh Allen used to struggle against the Blitz. It used to be one of the only things that made him appear human. Heavy emphasis on used to. How Buffalo will try to win. The Bills and Ravens are closer in their plans of attack than most people realize this year, with elevated pass rates and unreal efficiency placing additional strain on their defenses. The major difference lies in their defensive plan of attack. The Bills are able to settle into heavy zone coverages due to their elite defensive line generating organic pressure, whereas the Ravens play some of the highest man coverage rates and highest blitz rates in the league. Why is that important to understand off the rip? The efficiencies of each of these offenses have deflated the total offensive snaps each has run thus far. 56, 59, and 60 for Baltimore, and 59, 52, and 92 for the Bills. But if the team on the other side is equally as efficient, then what happens? Hint, it looks a lot like the outlier in the snap numbers above, 92, which came against another top offense in the league in Miami last week. We know by now how the Bills are going to try and win games, with the ball primarily in Josh Allen's hands. Brian Dayball designed an intricate offense to leverage Allen's mobility and arm strength, developing him into a capable pocket passer along the way. New offensive coordinator Ken Dorsey now gets the privilege of calling plays from a blueprint with proven success and he has largely done a solid job to this point. Josh Allen's 6.8 intended air yards per pass attempt highlights the short area work being primarily utilized so far, with the offense still utilizing layered route trees through the dynamic abilities of their pass-catching core. On the ground, 
Devin Singletary runs as the true lead back, with fullback Reggie Gilliam, holdover change of pace back Zach Moss, and rookie James Cook mixing in sparingly behind him. A standard week allots only 8-10 to 10 carries and 2-3 to three targets, but we saw what can happen against specific opponents and subsequent game plans last week against the Dolphins, where Singletary accounted for 9 carries and led the team with 11 targets. Why is that important here? Well, Singletary checks in with the third most routes run on the season, behind only Saquon Barkley and Joe Mixon, and the Ravens and Dolphins employ similar base defenses. The pure rushing matchup yields a below-average 4.08 net adjusted line yards metric against what should be considered the strength of the Baltimore defense in its current state. The pass game continues to be an embarrassment of riches, with Gabe Davis the only true every-down pass catcher as the team has elected to hold Stephon Diggs in the 65-70% snap range, keeping him fresh and deadly on a per-snap basis. Isaiah McKenzie, Jamison Crowder, and Jake Kumaro mix in behind the top two, typically dependent on matchup and game plan. Dawson Knox should be considered a near-every-down tight end and is in a route at a 66% clip, good for 19th in the league. The development of Knox as a blocker and the health of the secondary pass catchers has appeared to sap some of his upside in the pass game, 75.4% route participation last year. This week, Bills pass catchers should find themselves in man coverage at an increased rate against which Stephon Diggs, Isaiah McKenzie, and Gabriel Davis all have historically excelled. How Baltimore will try to win Baltimore's weekly game plan typically starts with their defense. It has historically been built around the nose tackle position, which has clogged the middle of the field at one of the best rates over the previous five years, allowing Wink Martindale, now with the Giants, and Mike McDonald, the new defensive coordinator, to blitz at some of the highest rates in the league, knowing that their elite cornerback trio was capable in man coverage on the back end. That's important information to grasp with the knowledge that nose tackle Michael Pierce just tore his bicep last week, and the secondary has been dealing with extensive injuries already this season. Furthermore, Ravens linebackers are solid against the run and good when blitzing, but they are atrocious in coverage. Josh Allen has increased his performance against the Blitz dramatically this season, going from a 59% completion rate and 6.2 yards per attempt in 2021 to a 73% completion rate and 9.3 yards per attempt to start 2022. On the other side of the ball, the Ravens boast the league's most efficient offense, one that is also extremely concentrated from a snap rate perspective and a workload perspective. That, my friends, is a winning fantasy formula. Quarterback Lamar Jackson has hit the rushing bonus each of the last two games, each coming against teams that utilize the blitz heavily. That will not be the case this week against the low blitz rates of Buffalo, as in lowest in the league at just 6.1%. Lols. When you combine that with the lack of health amongst the running backs, the injuries to the offensive line, and the expected linebacker emphasis placed on Lamar Jackson, we're not left with a lot to love from a rushing perspective out of the Ravens this week. J.K. Dobbins played 43% of the offensive snaps in his first game back from injury, joined by fullback Patrick Richard and change of pace back Justice Hill. Most notably, Patrick Richard played about 65% of the offensive snaps in every game this year from an offense at the bottom of the league in 11 personnel usage. I don't expect we'll see an increase to the early season usage from the run game here, and I don't expect Lamar Jackson will carry the same rushing upside that we've seen over the previous two weeks, Against the Jets team in the bottom seven in blitz rate, Lamar put up just six for 17 and zero on the ground. Continuing that discussion as it relates to the pass game, giddy up. If the Bills aren't blitzing, Lamar Jackson isn't escaping to beat the blitz, the run game isn't at full health, and the Ravens find themselves in the highest game total of the week. Yeah, wheels up, baby. 
Mark Andrews leads the team in pass catcher snaps and is in a route at a 96.6% clip, first amongst tight ends. Duh. Yeah, consider Andrews the top tight end play on the slate. The dude even carries a 12.1 ADOT at the tight end position and robust 39.8% team air yard share. First, duh. Which are absolutely bonkers numbers for any pass catcher, let alone a tight end. Chris Olave leads the league in air yards by a wide margin after popping for over 301 game, but Mark Andrews checks in second overall at 376. Andrews also checks in second in the league in weighted opportunity rate, 84.4%, behind only Cooper Cup. Rashad Bateman and Devin Duvernay are each playing about 60% of the team's offensive snaps, with Demarcus Robinson and Tylen Wallace mixing in for a handful of snaps weekly. The dynamic abilities of Bateman and Duvernay make it so they can pop for a monster game on the modest snap rates, but that also keeps the respective floors lower than others priced in the same range. Likeliest Game Flow It is likely we see some fireworks here, one way or another. The Bills' offense and how they are able to exploit man coverages and game plan to a specific opponent are likelier than not to find success here, with the Ravens and their offensive efficiency likely to break through at some point as well. Defensive injuries on both sides are not going to make life any easier for each respective defense, particularly Michael Pierce in the secondary in Baltimore and the defensive tackles and secondary in Buffalo. Last week, I wrote up the Buffalo-Miami game with a hint of negativity and gloom, on purpose to highlight the fact that there were more paths to failure than the field appeared to be giving credit for. This write-up comes to you with a different feel, as in, there are fewer paths to ultimate failure here when compared to last week. It almost doesn't matter who eventually asserts control over the game flow and environment as each team is well-suited to dialing up the aggression, meaning the path to failure is a singular outcome of each offense underperforming, which is not likely. Commanders at Cowboys. Kickoff Sunday, October 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 41.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Dallas holds the fourth lowest pass rate over expectation, while Washington holds the seventh highest pass rate over expectation. The Commanders are a breeding ground for fantasy production early in the season, and I will continue to look for ways to target their game environments before the field catches on. Both defenses are highly aggressive, combined with above-average number of offensive plays we expect, that could lead to both increased opportunities for splash plays against and increased opportunities for defensive points to be scored. How Washington will try to win I don't know if Week 3's stumble from this Washington team is going to halt the masses from catching on to just how forward-leaning this offense has been to start the season, but I really hope it's the case. And for my inner circle fam, we called for the Eagles to shut down the Commanders last week due to the heavy emphasis their defense places on unique packages designed to confuse the quarterback. Hint, Carson Wentz is easily confused. This offense currently sits 4th in pass attempts per game, 43.3, 7th in pass rate over expectation, 13th in intended air yards per pass attempt, and 3rd in total intended air yards. What's more, their defense is seeding the deepest defensive average depth of target in the league through 3 weeks, 9.9, blitzes at the 5th highest rate in the league, 34.1%, and has given up the 12th most air yards after the catch to boot. All of that to say, their offense is aggressive, and they harbor aggression against on defense through elevated blitz rates and cover 1. Yummy. Antonio Gibson gets at least one more week as the unquestioned lead back with rookie Brian Robinson still on the IR slash NFI list through week four. Gibson's snap rate has seen a steady decline since a 64% showing in week one, seeding additional work to JD McKissick each subsequent week. 
McKissick's snap rates have increased from 40 to 46 to 53%. Most of that can be explained by way of game environment, as the Commanders have found themselves controlling the flow in Week 1 and playing from behind in the second half of Weeks 2 and 3. The biggest trend to note here is the past game involvement of Gibson and McKissick, as Gibson started the season seeing 8 targets in a controlled environment, but dropped to 4 and then 1 target in Weeks 2 and 3, while McKissick started slow with 3 targets, followed by 7 and 9. Again, the workload split between the two should come down to ultimate game environment, at least for one more week, before Brian Robinson can return. The matchup on the ground yields a pedestrian 4.21 net adjusted line yards metric behind an underperforming Washington offensive line generating only 3.1 running back yards per carry. The pass game exploration must start with the offensive line, a unit that struggled to the tune of nine sacks allowed against the Eagles last week. That same unit now has to block Micah Parsons and his league-leading 19 pressures. As I mentioned before, Wentz has been aggressive downfield so far this year, a trend that has continued from his time with the Eagles. That said, we could see a slight hit to the downfield aggression against the natural pass rush of the Cowboys, which could serve to filter additional looks over the short to intermediate middle of the field, Curtis Samuel, Logan Thomas, and the running backs. That's backed up by the data as the Cowboys have forced the least amount of air yards in the league through three games. 216. Expect all of rookie Jahan Dotson, Terry McLaurin, and Curtis Samuel to see more than 80% of the offensive snaps on an offense that utilizes 11 personnel at one of the highest rates in the league. Tight end Logan Thomas's snap rate came back down in week three after increasing over the first two weeks of the season, which is more indicative of a return to a new role as opposed to anything to do with his injury. I'd expect him to maintain a 65 to 75% snap rate role moving forward. How Dallas will try to win. The Cowboys have been extremely balanced in the absence of Dak Prescott, finishing the last two games with a combined 52.1% pass rate on 125 offensive plays run from scrimmage. Head coach Mike McCarthy and offensive coordinator Kellen Moore have kept their pace of play in the top 10 in the league, and it appears they are not afraid to utilize fill-in quarterback Cooper Rush, evidenced by his 31 pass attempts in each of the last two games. With that known, this is still a team that draws its identity through its offensive line an offensive line that has performed at a high level once again this year. They currently rank 8th in run-blocking metrics and have given up only 5 sacks through 3 games while having played 2 of the top 7 defenses in overall blitz rate. They've been able to leverage that offensive line through a defense allowing only 17.3 points per game, combining to assert control over game environments as they aim to do each game. The Cowboys rank 19th in plays per game at just 61.3, and have finished between 61 and 69 offensive plays run from scrimmage in every game this year. Part of that is due to a defense that ranks in the top half of the league in drive success rate allowed, and part of that is due to an offense that ranks in the bottom half of the league in drive success rate, which, when combined with their pace and rush rates, keeps them around league average in total plays. So, while their 47.9% rush rate with Cooper Rush at quarterback hints at an increased run game volume, The reality is they are averaging 26 running back carries in Cooper Rush starts, and that volume is split almost down the middle between Ezekiel Elliott, 30 carries and 3 targets, and Tony Pollard, 22 carries and 8 targets. That leaves very little meat on the proverbial bone, at least from a fantasy perspective. For example, Tony Pollard has played between 40 and 55% of the offensive snaps each game this season, while Zeke has been between 58 and 67% for an offense leading the league in heavy personnel sets, 21 and 12 personnel. That makes sense considering the state of their pass-catching core. The matchup on the ground yields a healthy 4.79 net adjusted line yards metric against a defense allowing 5.27 running back yards per carry to start the year. 
Michael Gallup was reportedly close to a return to game action last week after practicing in full all week. Gallup then practiced in full on Wednesday this week. All signs point to Gallup making his return for Week 4 against the Commanders, which is a welcome sight for a team lacking top-end talent amongst its pass catcher ranks. Furthering the necessity for Gallup's return is the likely absence of every-down tight end Dalton Schultz, who missed last week with a sprained PCL. Did start the week with a limited showing, but I'd expect him to miss Week 4. Alpha wide receiver C.D. Lamb plays virtually every snap on offense, typically joined by the aforementioned Dalton Schultz in a near-every-down role. Noah Brown has been filling in admirably in an 80-90% role, with rookie Jalen Tolbert, Dennis Houston, and Simi Fahoko combining to soak up any additional snaps out of 11 personnel. I wouldn't expect Gallup to immediately return to an every-down role on the perimeter, which is likely to leave C.D. Lamb and Noah Brown's snap rates largely unchanged, likely coming at the expense of the tertiary options. The Commanders have blitzed at the fifth-highest rate to start the season, generating pressure at an above-average 25.2% rate. The biggest problem I see here is the elite pass blocking of the Dallas offensive line, which is likely to combine to open up additional room over the middle of the field for C.D. Lamb and Noah Brown to operate, and whichever tight end sees enough snaps to matter. Last week, blocking tight end Jake Ferguson played 83% of the offensive snaps, but saw only two short area targets, while pass catching tight end Peyton Hendershot played 59% of the offensive snaps and saw more of a downfield role. Likeliest Game Flow There are likely going to be above average total number of offensive plays run from scrimmage here. The eventual flow and dispersal of those offensive plays likely comes down to Washington's level of success through the air over the short to intermediate areas of the field. Washington ranks 12th in net drive success rate, a metric that takes both offensive and defensive DSR into account, while Dallas ranks 17th, but there isn't a clear indicator of which team will eventually assert control of the flow. What we do know is the pace and environment are likely to lead to a bump to the total number of offensive plays run from scrimmage. We know Dallas is going to try and assert control over the flow of the game through an aggressive defense and its own offensive line, and Washington aims to disrupt drives on defense through elevated blitz rates and parlay that into sustained drives with deep shots mixed in on offense. That exploration simply leaves such a wide range of potential outcomes as to the exact flow of the game that it's futile to try and narrow it down. The biggest takeaway here is that we're likely to see a lot of plays run against two aggressive defenses. That opens up additional opportunities for defensive points to be scored, increased volume for each offense, and an environment that could develop into something noteworthy for fantasy production. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Seahawks at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, October 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over-under, 48. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. These teams combined to score 80 points in an explosive Week 17 matchup last season. The Lions offense has been very aggressive, and the Seahawks have thrown the ball at a surprisingly high rate to start the season. Injuries on the Detroit offense threaten the scoring outlook of this game. Somewhat surprisingly, both teams are playing with above-league average tempo. How Seattle will try to win The Seahawks continue to show signs of opening things up in the post-Russ era, allowing Geno Smith to throw the ball 44 times in Week 3 against the Falcons or two-thirds of their offensive plays. The Seahawks are also operating at the 15th fastest situation neutral pace through three weeks. As they enter week four, the Seahawks have had two solid performances sandwiched around a dud in San Francisco. In week four, 
The Seahawks face a Lions defense that is blitzing at the fourth highest rate in the league and therefore plays a lot of man coverage. Lions cornerback Jeff Okuda has performed admirably, but the rest of the Lions secondary has struggled this year, and the Lions defense has given up 93 points through three weeks of the season. The Seahawks passing offense continues to be relatively concentrated, with DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett combining for over 50% of their team's targets in week three and showing the ability they both still possess to have spiked weeks. Week 4 will be telling for the outlook of this team's approach going forward as they face a Lions defense that ranks bottom 5 in the league in yards per carry allowed and PFF rush defense grade and should be tempting for Pete Carroll to get back to his roots of ground and pound offense. That temptation will only be increased if DeAndre Swift and Amon Ross St. Brown are unable to play. Both missed practice on Wednesday and Swift is almost definitely out for multiple weeks while ARSB is looking iffy at best. When the Seahawks do take to the air, it will likely be in an aggressive manner against the Detroit defense that plays a heavy amount of man defense, leaving themselves vulnerable against Geno Smith, who has been aggressive downfield, averaging the ninth highest average intended air yards on pass attempts in the NFL. Despite the positive outlook from a matchup perspective, we should keep in mind that the Seahawks have only four offensive touchdowns through three weeks. So even if they exceed expectations, it could be modest from a slate perspective. How Detroit will try to win. The Lions continued their troubling tendency from last season of losing close games by blowing a second half lead to the Vikings in week three, thanks in large part to a decision to kick a long field goal towards the end of the game that gave the Vikings a short field and enabled them to score the game winning touchdown in the final seconds. The Lions' aggressiveness is what makes them exciting and competitive, but also tends to cost them at the most inopportune times, as it did last week. Lions games have averaged 63 points through three weeks, with a low of 52. However, the potential absences of Swift and St. Brown will vastly change the outlook for this team. It will be interesting to see their change of offensive approach without their most explosive players, who also act as centerpieces of their scheme. The Lions pass the ball about even with their expected pass rate based on game situations through three weeks and play at the third fastest pace in the league. The Seahawks' defense has been very beatable so far this season, with a 29th graded run defense by PFF and a pass defense that ranks 31st in both DVOA and PFF coverage grade. The Lions' offense will likely take a spread-the-wealth approach to the Seahawks, with options to attack them in a variety of ways and no clear superior talents to throw the ball to. This may have the unintended effect of making the Lions less predictable and forcing the Seahawks to respect the Lions in all areas. The matchup from a philosophical perspective is also good for the Lions, especially in their shorthanded state, as the Seahawks play a cover-three heavy scheme that focuses on taking away plays down the field and to the perimeter, instead forcing the ball short and to the middle of the field, where they rely on players to make tackles in space and force offenses to march down the field methodically. This should play right into the hands of Jared Goff's strengths, as he is best when targeting the short and middle areas of the field, while his shortcomings have always been arm strength on tight perimeter throws. Likeliest Game Flow So much of this game's outlook hinges on the status of Swift and ARSB, although those statuses are not looking good at the moment. Assuming those two miss this game, the lack of explosive players for the Lions, as well as the tendencies of the Seattle defense and Detroit offense that encourage long, extended drives, will make it unlikely that the Lions' offense would be what sparks this game into a show of offensive fireworks. Rather, the likeliest path to a high-scoring affair would be from the Seahawks taking advantage of Detroit's aggressiveness on defense and making them pay with big plays through the air and chunk runs from Rashad Penny and Kenneth Walker. 
The pace of play of the Lions and their defense's tendency to give up big plays gives this game a glimmer of hope to meet the expectations of a 50-point over-under despite the missing pieces on offense. This game should provide value for us in one way or another. It is just a matter of whether we will want to attack this game from a one-off perspective or as a full game environment that can carry us to the top of the leaderboards that will be determined by how things shape up on Sunday. Somehow, in some way, Geno Smith versus Jared Goff is one of the games with the highest scoring expectations in the NFL on a Sunday in 2022. Life comes at you fast. Chargers at Texans. Kickoff Sunday, October 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 45. Game Overview by Hilo. Key injuries are starting to mount for the Chargers once again, as left tackle Rashawn Slater and edge Joey Bosa were placed on IR with a ruptured bicep and groin injury requiring surgery, respectively. Interestingly enough, both teams ranked top 10 in situation-neutral pace of play through three games. Houston's defense is entirely underrated to this point, allowing only 19.7 points per game from a primary 4-3-5 inside-out halves defensive alignment. Once the Texans minimize mental mistakes, communication errors, and missed tackles, this could be one of the more surprising defenses in the league this year. How Los Angeles will try to win. Quarterback Justin Herbert somehow managed to play last week through fractured rib cartilage. Bold move considering the Chargers' recent history with Novocaine shots to the rib area. Sorry, had to. That said, he struggled mightily against one of the more surprising defenses in the Jaguars to the tune of 25 for 45 for 297 yards one touchdown, and one pick. The team was also without Keenan Allen and lost Jalen Guyton for the year in the second half. Keenan got in a limited session Wednesday after missing his second consecutive contest last week, highlighting the potential for a return in week four. Either way, Houston should present a less resistant opponent than the swarming Jaguars. The Chargers have played at the league's 15th fastest first half pace of play and 10th fastest situation neutral pace of play to start the season, really picking things up when trailing third fastest when trailing. The team also ranks fourth in the league in pass rate over expectation through three weeks, has an underperforming offensive line, and just lost left tackle Rashawn Slater to a ruptured bicep. On the other side of the ball, standout edge Joey Bosa will require surgery to address a groin injury and was placed on IR following week three. Add it up, and we've got injuries to both lines, elevated pace of play, and elevated pass rates. The Chargers' offensive line has completely underperformed at this point generating only 3.64 adjusted line yards and second-to-last ranks in all of stuff rate, second-level yards, and open field yards. Their running backs are combining for an abysmal 2.91 yards per carry. Expect the Chargers to continue to lean into the pass as their expected pass rate lands right at league average, 60%, considering their adjusted situation, meaning they are passing about 8% more than their general situation would dictate to this point in the season. The matchup on the ground boosts expectations slightly, yielding a 4.305 net adjusted line yards metric against a defense allowing 5.3 running back yards per carry. Austin Eckler's snap rate, production, and involvement have taken a dramatic hit this season, with no clear indication as to why given or seen. Expect Eckler to land in the 55-65% snap rate range in a standard week, backed up by both Sony Michelle for short yardage situations and Joshua Kelly in a strict change of pace role. The injuries have not stopped at the lines for the Chargers, as Keenan Allen has missed two games with a hamstring injury, mismatched tight end Donald Parham Jr. has yet to play this year, and field-stretching wide receiver Jalen Guyton was lost for the year with a torn ACL. Mike Williams and Josh Palmer should continue in 90%-plus snap rate roles, 
with DeAndre Carter the likeliest to directly fill the Keenan role should he be held out again, and Gerald Everett fulfilling the primary pass-catching tight end role on 65-75% to of the offensive snaps. Houston's defense has held their own enough through unique base sets, primarily playing from a hybrid 4-3-5 inside-out halves defensive alignment, which is designed to filter volume to the short middle, where second-level players can swarm to the point of reception, and deep perimeter, where backs can leverage the sidelines as an additional defender, areas of the field. If they can limit the missed tackles, we're likely to see this defense begin to start turning some heads. Even so, they are allowing only 19.7 points per game through their conservative, prevent-style ways. How Houston will try to win The Texans actually rank 5th in situation-neutral pace of play, and 2nd in first-half pace of play through 3 weeks, which has taken me by surprise considering the historical norms of both the Texans and Lovey Smith. Houston also has a positive pass rate over expectation value through Pep Hamilton's competent offensive design and play calling. Second-year quarterback Davis Mills ranks right at league average in intended air yards per pass attempt, pass attempts, and completed air yards per completion, but has struggled to the tune of the fourth-worst completion rate, 57.94%. The heavy design of the offense has meant increased rates of 12 and 21 personnel, ranking towards the bottom of the league in 11 personnel usage. That has meant only Brandon Cooks can be considered a near-every-down skill position player, with Nico Collins, Chris Moore, Chris Connolly, blocking tight end Farrell Brown, Revan Jordan, O.J. Howard, and even off-season release Jordan Aikens playing significant snaps in a game this season, 30% or more. That pretty much removes all semblance of fantasy floor from anyone not named Brandon Cooks. The Texans now have played the Colts to a tie, lost to the Broncos by a score, and lost to the Bears by a field goal. Until they get serious about aiming to dictate the terms of games, we're likely to see a ton of games involving the Texans decided by one score or less. As in, they do enough to dictate the pace at times, but their lack of killer instinct means we can be fairly certain they won't push the score unless they are on the bad end of it. That's a significant development for their run game, as they can become rather one-dimensional at times, which allows their opposition to dedicate additional resources to stopping the run. Rookie Damian Pierce has taken the lead in the backfield over the previous two games, racking up 62 and 59% snap rates, and route to 16 and 22 running back opportunities. More importantly, that workload equated to 77.6% of the total running back opportunities in Houston, good for top 12 marks. Rex Burkhead now fills the change of pace and clear passing down role, which has amounted to about 40% snap rates and minimal opportunities over the previous two games. The matchup on the ground yields a below-average 4.2 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Chargers opponent allowing 5.29 running back yards per carry. As I alluded to above, Alpha wide receiver Brandon Cooks is the only player seeing consistent snap rates and volume, but the offense has done an interesting job at mixing in the abilities of the secondary pieces, most notably in the red zone. The Chargers are still a moderate blitz rate team that settles into zone at an increased rate, but they have really struggled to generate any pressure up front this season, low 13.4% pressure rate and only six quarterback knockdowns. Joey Bosa will now be out for an extended period of time. If allowed a clean pocket, pretty much any quarterback in the league can pick apart a zone defense, which is what we've seen to this point. Trevor Lawrence just passed to a 115.5 rating and was not sacked. Look for Cooks to once again serve as the focal point through the air with a slew of secondary and tertiary options behind him. Likeliest game flow. I came into this write-up thinking this game represented an interesting bounce-back spot for the Chargers, but I'm leaving it thinking the Texans are likelier to give the Chargers fits based on unique defensive packages and leveraged coverages. Consider this. 
The Texans have missed the most tackles in the league, but still rank 8th in yards after catch allowed. That's an interesting combination to say the least, and highlights the swarming nature and preventative stances taken to limit splash plays against them. That means the Chargers and their 19th-ranked drive success rate are likely going to have to march the field and put together sustained drives in order to find success here. Also, consider the fact that the Chargers are struggling with time of possession issues due to a heavy zone defense and almost zero pressure generated on opposing quarterbacks. That all combines to form a likeliest game flow that has this game playing rather choppy, with neither team really primed to assert control over the other. Titans at Colts. Kickoff October 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 42.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Both teams rank in the bottom half of the league in first half pace of play. Tennessee 30th, Indianapolis 19th. Remember, it's still too early to rely on situation-neutral pace of play metrics due to the low sample size of teams in those situations. Two of the bottom seven teams in pass rate over expectation through three weeks. If this game were to pop, it would almost certainly come through one of the high-profile running backs, or both. The Colts are allowing the 11th fewest yards per drive, while the Titans are allowing the third most on defense. How Tennessee will try to win. The Titans have become almost boring to write up because it has been the same story every week for the past four-plus seasons under Mike Vrabel. Run the ball, control the clock, crack down defensively in the red zone, and limit mistakes on offense. And guess what? They're at it again in 2022. Shocker. Tennessee has run only 56 offensive plays per game through three weeks, due in large part to the fifth lowest pass rate over expectation, paired with a large drive success rate, DSR, discrepancy, the Titans rank just 24th in DSR on offense, and allow a 25th ranked DSR on defense. Not great, Bob. That leaves a rather tight range of expected pass volume. 28 to 32 attempts range is the likeliest outcome in a standard week, with most of the upside coming through the run game as the path to increased volume. The low blitz rates and heavy zone concepts of their defense have held opponents to a moderate 7.6 defensive ADOT, with primary struggles coming through the increased volume against thus far. Although Derrick Henry has seen snap rates of 68 and 74% in the two non-blowout game environments this season, his 54 of 58 non-blowout running back carries is good for a massive 93.1% team running back carry share. Said another way, Derrick Henry has seen a carry on 54 of his 113 offensive snaps this season. And even another way, 44.8% of Derrick Henry's offensive snaps have led to a carry. I wanted to highlight it that way to emphasize the fact that the standard Derrick Henry ceiling has not left this year, even though he has yet to truly rip a ceiling game through three weeks. As for the matchup, not ideal. Indianapolis has held opposing running backs to 2.51 yards per carry on the backs of top marks and adjusted line yards on defense, with the top overall second level rank and second overall stuffed rank. Conversely, Tennessee's middling 3.99 adjusted line yards metric and 3.72 running back yards per carry form a troublesome 3.415 net adjusted line yards metric and disgusting 3.115 net yards per carry value, particularly considering Taylor Lewan was lost for the season in week two. Although not perfect yet, we're starting to get to the point in this season where I begin placing additional emphasis on net adjusted line yards metrics, and those are not pretty. Yeah, yeah, the Traylon Burks week is coming. I get it. And if you didn't follow me this offseason for best ball content, you should know my love for Traylon Burks runs deep. But yeah, here comes the boom, ready or not. No pass catcher for the Titans has seen a snap rate over 72% through three games. 
No pass catcher for the Titans has seen double-digit targets in a game thus far. Also, Tennessee has utilized either a four- or five-man rotation at wide receiver in every game this year. And finally, the Titans have attempted just 28 passes per game through three weeks. As such, all Tennessee pass catchers must be viewed as low-floor, moderate-ceiling plays until we see either a narrowed utilization tree, possible, or increased pass rates, unlikely. So yes, while Traylon is a beast of a man and carries immense upside, identifying when the breakout will come based on the likeliest scenario of 4-7 to seven targets in a standard week is a difficult task. Diatribe over. Almost. All of Robert Woods, Traylon Burks, Nick Westbrook-Akine, Kyle Phillips, if active, Cody Hollister, Josh Gordon, Jeff Swaim, Austin Hooper, Derrick Henry, and Dontrell Hilliard are fighting for a piece of the likely 28-32 to 32 pass attempts on a standard week for Tennessee. For those keeping track at home, that's 10 pass catchers that see snaps for a low pass volume offense. How Indianapolis will try to win. The Colts convey many similar characteristics to the Titans in the way their offense is built, with moderate to slow pace of play, 19th ranked first half pace of play, elevated rush rates, 7th lowest pass rate over expectation, and a stifling defense, 12th ranked yards allowed per game at 315. The big difference is the Colts are allowing only 20.3 points per game to start the season, while the Titans are allowing 28 per game. This should mean the Colts are afforded the opportunity to continue their likeliest plan of attack deep into the game, which should involve heavy Jonathan Taylor utilization and a relatively spread pass offense behind it. One of the biggest trends to recognize for the Colts is the disparity in offensive plays run from scrimmage so far this season, with two extreme outlier games and one near their season average. 92 and 48 as outliers, with the third at 71. Their season average is 70.33 plays per game. That's important to realize as the only player seeing elite utilization on this team is Jonathan Taylor, with even Michael Pittman checking in with a game of 26% team target market share and a game with a 24% team target market share. Those are not elite. Speaking of elite, Jonathan Taylor has played 74% or more of the offensive snaps in each game thus far, has been responsible for 92.1% of the team's running back carries, 64 of 68, and has increased his route participation rate to boot this season, checks in fourth in the league in total routes run at 81. It appears the offseason coaching promises to get Naeem Hines more involved were tenuous. This is Taylor's backfield, and he is the back the team wants on the field to try and win football games. The matchup on the ground yields a moderate 4.31 net adjusted line yards metric behind an offensive line largely underperforming in most run-blocking metrics to start the season, 3.94 net adjusted line yards. Expect Naeem Hines to fill a standard change of pace role, also likely to mix in for some 21 personnel snaps as well. The Colts utilize heavy 12 personnel alignments in addition to above-average true 21 personnel, as in two running backs and not one running back and one fullback. That is important to understand considering the Colts have utilized no fewer than four wide receivers and three tight ends in their standard pass catcher rotation in each game this season. Michael Pittman operates in an every-down role, 94 and 98% snap rates in his two healthy games. Paris Campbell operates in a near-every-down role, 77, 82, and 86%. And then Ashton Doolin, rookie Alec Pierce, Mike Strachan, Mo Alley-Cox, Kylan Granson, and Jelani Woods all mix in for meaningful snaps behind them on a standard week. Furthermore, quarterback Matt Ryan has thrown for only three touchdowns to this point in the season, one to Michael Pittman and two to third-string tight end Jelani Woods in week three. Yeah, it's just a spread out and jumbled up mess for fantasy purposes.
The Titans have forced a moderate 7.6 ADOT this season, but have really struggled with tackling, missing 18 tackles and allowing 491 total yards after the catch through just three games. The problem is the routes that the Colts' primary pass catcher, Michael Pittman, runs are low upside routes, primarily of the true X-roll variety, slants, curls, outs, posts, etc. When paired with the sub-elite team target market share, we're left with not a ton of upside on any individual pass catcher for the Colts. Likeliest Game Flow One of the more difficult things to do when starting out in DFS is to be able to take an unbiased look at the likeliest scenario and clearly see the potential outlier outcomes on either side. That lesson could not be more pertinent than to this game, where a solid 70-80% to of the potential outcomes likely fall on a very condensed portion of the overall range of outcomes likely tightly congested around the mean, high spike bell curve. As in, such a massive portion of the potential outcomes for this game will land around the Vegas game total, an outcome that doesn't carry an overwhelming amount of fantasy potential given how both these teams are built. The simple inclusion of Derrick Henry and Jonathan Taylor, however, means there are viable paths to this game erupting. That is to say, typically games don't erupt because of teams, typically games erupt because of players. For example, Devin Duvernay returning the opening kick, and then Rashad Bateman getting behind the defense for a 75-yard score. Then Miami leaping back through deep shots to Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle in man coverage. That game was not blowing up without the dynamism of the players involved. That same lesson can be applied to this game, where if things go right for either Derrick Henry or Jonathan Taylor, or both, they could go right in a hurry and bring other pieces along for the ride. That exploration isn't even necessarily worthy of its own tributary game write-up because of the lower chance of it actually happening, but it is fully worth mentioning when tied to the discussion of ranges of outcome for individual game environments. Ultimately, it is likeliest we see the Colts assert control of the game flow, while the teams combine to force a moderate to slow tempo in an upside-sapping environment. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Bears at the Giants. Kick off Sunday, October 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 39.5. Game Overview by Hilo. There is a reason this game has a paltry game total of 39.5 points. It is more likely for Brian DeBall and Mike Kafka to paint a Monet with melted crayons than it is for Matt Eberflus and Luke Getze to allow their dynamic quarterback room to blossom. The Giants are running out of pass catchers. Again. David Montgomery is dealing with knee and ankle injuries and missed practice Wednesday. Two of the bottom eight teams in pass rate over expectation through three weeks. How Chicago will try to win. It's a bit deflating that Matt Eberflus, Luke Getze, and the Chicago Bears get a sense of vindication for the way they've been playing through a 2-1 and record. And maybe it is the best way to try and win games with their current roster and coaching staff. Who am I to say different? Either way, their current plan of attack is to crack down defensively and have their offense simply not lose the game for them. Quite the opposite of exciting. They've somehow managed to win two games while averaging the second fewest yards per drive on offense and the 13th most yards per drive on defense cracking down in the red zone enough to hold opponents to just 19 points per game. That said, they played the 49ers at a water park, got blown out by the competent Packers, and narrowly escaped Lovey's revenge. 
Sounds like a cut-rate ride at a fair, to be honest, for a 23-20 victory last week. I've ranted enough about this offense over the previous two weeks, but let's grab a quick reminder. We've seen Getze and the Bears attempt to mask the fact that they have the worst offensive line on paper in the league. Utilizing heavy 12 and 21 personnel alignments, little to no pre-snap misdirection or motions, and 11.3 fewer pass attempts per game than the Falcons, who currently rank 31st in pass attempts per game at 26.3. David Montgomery was quickly ruled out for the remainder of the Bears' Week 3 game after leaving with an ankle injury and has been labeled as day-to-day by Aberflus. It was then announced that Montgomery is dealing with both ankle and knee injuries after he missed practice on Wednesday. Either way, as was shown in the preseason and so far this season, the Bears plan on utilizing a primary running back that sees 75-80% to of the offensive snaps and running back opportunities. Whether that is David Montgomery or backup Khalil Herbert appears not to matter, with rookie Treston Ebner on hand to soak up any additional change of pace duties left behind should Montgomery miss. Chicago's offensive line has performed well in the run-blocking department to start the season, blocking for an above-average 4.79 adjusted line yards and springing their running backs for an average 5.63 yards per carry. The matchup yields a well-above-average 4.94 net adjusted line yards metric against an opponent allowing 5.54 yards per carry to opposing backfields through three games. The Bears' offense can best be described as a vanilla-heavy offense, with elevated rates of both 21 and 12 personnel, extreme rush rates, unexciting route trees for their primary pass catchers, and a lack of trust in their second-year signal caller. Wide receiver Darnell Mooney and tight end Cole Kmet are on the field almost every snap. I'm sure their respective conditioning is on point after running wind sprints for three weeks. Equinomia St. Brown serves as the de facto wide receiver too, playing 75-85% to 85% of the offensive snaps, and some combination of Dante Pettis, Byron Pringle, and Amir Smith-Marset fills in for the remaining pass-catcher snaps. What's even funnier is the fact that quarterback Justin Fields leads the league in percentage of passes thrown deep. There's really nothing to see here until we see more enthusiasm from Getze. How New York Will Try to Win Brian DeBall and the New York football giants have quite literally willed their way to a 2-1 start, falling a fourth-quarter drive short of 3-0 on national television this past Monday. On paper, this is a very middle-of-the-road team from top to bottom, but their coaching staff are consistently placing this team in position to win games. From going for 2 as time expired in Week 1 to win the game, to building an offense to maximize the talent on the field, to going toe-to-toe with the brooding Panthers in Week 2, this team is at least trying to win games. Their bottom 8 pass rate over expectation value looks dry on the surface, but they have built an offense around their best player, Saquon Barkley. He has been motioned out, used in the slot, used in power rushes, used in rushes off tackle, and pretty much everything in between. It's too early to tell the injury statuses of Kadarius Toney and Wandale Robinson. Both would be welcome sights to a team now missing Sterling Shepard and Kenny Galladay. Shepard tore his ACL. Galladay has simply gone missing. Continuing the discussion on Saquon Barkley, the dude is good at football, sees a lot of opportunities, and has an offense literally built around him. Sounds pretty good, eh? 
The matchup on the ground yields an above average 4.565 net adjusted line yards metric, primarily due to Chicago's shortcomings in the area defensively, as in New York's offensive line has yet to fully gel even with the offseason additions. They should get better as the year progresses, but they are not quite there yet. Even through those shortcomings, Giants running backs lead the league in yards per carry at 5.8, with Saquon responsible for 88.33% of the team's running back carries, 53 of 60. Saquon also leads the league with 6.0 yards per tote behind an offensive line generating an expected rush value over 1.5 yards less. Saquon Barkley is back, baby, and we haven't even talked about his snap rate. 83%, 84%, and 92% through three games. Expect Matt Breida to serve as a sparsely utilized change of pace back and for emergency situations. The Giants have played primarily from 11 and 12 personnel this year, with blocking tight ends Tanner Hudson and Chris Miarek falling in behind rookie pass catcher Daniel Bellinger at the position. There are only two pass catchers to see a game of 80% snap rate or higher so far this season, the injured Sterling Shepard, twice, and rookie David Sills, once. Paid like an alpha Kenny Galladay has seen snap rates of 77%, 3%, low, and 33%. Kadarius Toney has been either in the doghouse or injured. Electric yet undersized rookie Wandale Robinson has played only nine offensive snaps this season while fighting through injury, and Darius Slayton has played only 18 offensive snaps out of pure desperation. Summed up, the New York football giants have a starting wide receiver unit consisting of Richie James and rookie David Sills, with Kenny Galladay in no man's land and Kadarius Toney, Wandale Robinson, and Sterling Shepard hurt. The talent lies purely and emphatically with Tony and Robinson, but each are likely going to require a quick trip to their head coach's good side prior to seeing a significant run. That said, those are the players to be early on as opposed to late on, and keep an eye on their respective practice statuses throughout the week this week. Likeliest Game Flow It's likeliest we see both of these teams continue to attempt to run their lead rusher into a brick wall for 60 minutes. I kid, kind of. The Giants are quickly running out of healthy pass catchers in what seems like a yearly tradition at this point. The Bears aren't likely to let their lead rusher being out pry them away from hashtag establishing it, and both defenses are competent enough to load the box and make life a living hell for viewers of all ages. In reality, it is likelier to be Brian DeBull and Mike Kafka that paint a Monet with melted crayons than for Matt Eberflus and Luke Getze to allow the athleticism of their quarterback room to blossom. This isn't exactly the week of massive game totals, but there is a reason this one is sitting at a paltry 39.5 points. Furthermore, there are very little paths to this game blowing up, meaning we should have very little interest here from a DFS perspective, and what interest we do have should be limited to one-offs or potentially a secondary correlated pairing in deep MME pools. The Jaguars at the Eagles kick off Sunday, October 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson the upstart Jaguars head to Philly for an early season test. The Eagles appear to be the best team in the NFC, with dominant performances on both sides of the ball. Both teams have talented players on offense, but no direct focal point that all of the offense revolves around. Both teams appear to be for real, 
ranking top six in DVOA on both sides of the ball. How Jacksonville will try to win. Trevor Lawrence is quickly ascending the ranks of NFL QBs after a lackluster rookie season marred by a train wreck coaching staff and underwhelming organizational efficiency. Doug Peterson appears to have righted the ship and takes his redemption tour into The Link in Philadelphia, where he previously brought home a Lombardi trophy as the Eagles head coach during his five-year tenure. This game will certainly have added meaning for Peterson, and his troops are likely to be up for the challenge after a wildly impressive cross-country victory in Los Angeles against the Chargers in Week 3, as they dominated the game from start to finish on both sides of the ball and won by four touchdowns against a talented team that many had picked as the top team in the AFC this year. Jacksonville's tempo has risen dramatically this year as they currently have the seventh fastest situation neutral pace of play in the NFL after ranking 19th in the same category in 2021. The Jaguars have been around league average in their pass rate and pass rate over expectation through three weeks, but some of those statistics are still hard to gauge at this point due to the Jags dominating their opponents over the last two weeks. In their running game, the impressive return of James Robinson from an Achilles injury has given them a clear lead back who is complemented nicely by Travis Etienne in a change of pace and passing downs role. Finally, Trevor Lawrence has made the most of his new weapons as he has quickly shown chemistry with newcomers Christian Kirk, Zay Jones, and Evan Ingram. The Eagles don't have a clear area of weakness on defense, but they do play a lot of man coverage and have very talented corners on the perimeter which should increase the chances of the offense flowing through the middle of the field in the running game, short area passing, and targets to Kirk and Ingram from the slot and tight end position. How Philadelphia will try to win. This Eagles offense is a well-oiled machine, and the only thing that appears to be capable of slowing them down through three weeks has been themselves, as they scored 24 points in the first half of each of their last two games before pulling off the gas and not scoring at all in the second half of either game. The Eagles now face a Jaguars team that, while they look good by many metrics to start the season, have benefited from some good fortune as they faced a struggling Colts offense without Michael Pittman in Week 2 and a Chargers team whose QB Justin Herbert didn't practice all week and played with fractured rib cartilage in Week 3. They also gave up four touchdowns and 28 points to Carson Wentz and the Commanders in a Week 1 loss, the same team that was completely dismantled by the Eagles last week. The Eagles' offense has opened things up this year with the addition of A.J. Brown, putting everyone in the offense in a better position to take advantage of their abilities. Jalen Hurts is passing the ball better than he has at any point in his career, and his rushing ability, along with a talented stable of running backs, has made this offense something to behold. The Eagles are playing with pace, second in situation neutral pace of play, and throwing far more aggressively than they did during the last two months of the 2021 season currently sitting 11th in the league in pass rate over expectation, after ending last year with by far the most run-heavy offense in the league. This offense also has one of the top offensive lines in the league. With relatively little weakness, they are able to operate in any manner they choose and make defenses pay for selling out in any particular area. Even when the defenses do contain them, the ability of Hurts to make plays with his legs and his weapons to make plays after the catch give the Eagles the ingredients to have one of the best offenses in the league.
If we eliminate the second halves of the last two weeks, when the Eagles pumped the brakes and scored zero points in each second half, they have scored 86 points across the other eight quarters of football, or 43 points per four quarters. Game. When your team is operating at that level, you make the rules. This team will continue to push the pace, spread the ball, and let Jalen Hurts dice up opposing defenses. While the Jaguars' defense has played well the past two weeks, they are facing a different animal when they head into Philly this week. The Jaguars are certainly enjoying their early season success, as they should after last year's debacle. But this has no doubt also caught the attention of their opponents, and the Eagles will not be overlooking them or taking them lightly. I would expect the Eagles to test the Jaguars' defense early and often, really leaning on A.J. Brown and Dallas Goddard after Devonta Smith's breakout game in Week 3 forces defenses to play them honest and gives Brown and Goddard opportunities for one-on-one matchups in space. Brown is possibly the most physically gifted wide receiver in the NFL, and Goddard has truly special physical traits with the ball in his hands for a tight end. Games like this are where teams look to truly lean on those special abilities of their special players. Likeliest Game Flow The Eagles have emerged as a Super Bowl favorite and are playing the best football in the NFL right now, with difference makers on both sides of the ball and assertiveness and confidence showing in everything they do. They are certainly the team most likely to control and push things this week, as even in a good performance, the Jaguars' defense is highly unlikely to keep the Eagles from scoring less than 13 points, a touchdown and two field goals, in the first half of the game. The exciting thing for us from a fantasy perspective is the possibility that this Jaguars' offense is able to push the Eagles in a way that the Vikings and Commanders have been unable to do the last two weeks. If the Jaguars are able to consistently move the ball, especially in the first half, we could see this Eagles offense truly take flight in a way we have been robbed of so far this season. The Jets at the Steelers kick off Sunday, October 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41.5. Game Overview by Hilo These two teams combine for the fastest pace of play in Week 4. Two of the bottom five teams in net drive success rate, the average of offensive DSR and defensive DSR, a measure of a team's overall effectiveness on each side of the ball. Both teams are about league average in pass rate over expectation, with the Jets leading the league in overall pass rate and checking in second in offensive plays per game. Jets quarterback Zach Wilson managed all of nine offensive snaps in the preseason before injuring his knee meaning we have very little to go off of with so many new toys on offense. How New York will try to win We've grown comfortable in projecting how the Jets will try and win games over the first three weeks of the season, which now gets the proverbial wrench thrown in with the likely season debut of quarterback Zach Wilson, whom the team expects to gain clearance in time for Sunday following a preseason knee bruise and meniscus injury. And while that change likely doesn't affect how the Jets will try to win to any meaningful degree, what it is likely to do is influence the effectiveness of the offense. The Jets currently sport a 20th-ranked drive success rate on offense after finishing 27th in the metric in 2021, which makes sense considering Wilson's modest 7.6 intended air yards per pass attempt, low 55.6% completion percentage, and basement 3.3 completed air yards per pass attempt metric. What is likely to be sustained moving forward are the blistering pace, 
third-ranked first-half pace of play and first overall. The elevated pass rates, the team, averages five, the team averages 52 pass attempts per game over the first three games, and the low combined drive success rate between the team's offense and defense. The poor overall efficiency of the offense and defense have combined to allow the Jets only 19 rush attempts per game through three weeks, the third fewest in the league. This is concerning as the clear path of least resistance against the Steelers is on the ground. One positive is the improvements we've seen from the offensive line, a unit that ranks 14th in the league in adjusted line yards and 15th in adjusted sack rate allowed. Both marked improvements over last season. Michael Carter played the lead back role the first two weeks of the season, 60% and 61% snap rates, but split snaps evenly with rookie Brees Hall in week three. Consider the backfield a true timeshare, with Hall the more dynamic and complete back. The matchup on the ground yields a solid 4.37 net adjusted line yards metric against a Steelers defense allowing 4.18 yards per running back carry. Rookie wide receiver Garrett Wilson and newcomer tight end Tyler Conklin have stolen the show over the first three weeks of the season. The Jets have run almost exclusively from 11 and 12 personnel, meaning we should expect Elijah Moore and Corey Davis to continue to operate as near every down wide receivers, with Wilson ceding work to Braxton Berrios, the tight ends, and even Jeff Smith. Wilson leads the team in targets per route run by a wide margin, but the low 60-65% to 65% expected snap share leaves very little room for error from a fantasy perspective. We have all of nine preseason offensive snaps for Zach Wilson to work from this year, and with so many new additions to the offense this offseason, it's almost futile to try and project Wilson's potential chemistry and or first read. More additions to the wide range of outcomes bucket. How Pittsburgh will try to win. The game plan for Pittsburgh starts with their defense, and it should continue that way for the foreseeable future considering the rebuilding efforts currently underway following the departure of Ben Roethlisberger. Head coach Mike Tomlin seems intent on holding Kenny Pickett back for the duration of the season to learn under Mitchell Trubisky, which seems like an oxymoron. That said, we're likely to see a similar offensive game plan to what we've seen over the previous two seasons in Pittsburgh, with a ball-out quick design intended to hide a poor offensive line and relative lack of downfield skill from their quarterback. He has the arm strength, just lacks downfield precision, with repeated off-target throws beyond 10 yards. The rebuilding efforts of selecting primary skill position players and paying zero attention to the offensive line through the draft or free agency is an interesting approach, considering skill position players carry shorter longevity than other positions. I digress. The fact of the matter is, the Steelers are a quarterback and offensive line away from being truly dangerous in this league. Najee Harris had only 4 of 17 regular season games with a snap rate under 80% in 2021. He has two such games so far this year, with the third coming in at exactly 80%. It appears Tomlin's promise to cut back on his otherworldly workload from last season is being made good. Harris's 17 running back opportunities per game to start the year is a marked difference from the 23.6 he averaged per game in his rookie season. That's an issue considering Harris is averaging only 3.2 yards per tote and almost two targets per game less to start 2022, 5.5 in 2021, and 3.66 in 2022. Basically, the sheer volume has not been enough to offset the poor efficiency thus far. 
The matchup on the ground yields a slightly below average 4.24 net adjusted line yards metric behind an offensive line creating almost zero second level and open field opportunities, 29th in second level yards created and dead last in open field yards created. Expect undrafted rookie Jalen Warren to continue operating as the preferred change of pace option behind Harris, likely to land in the 25-30% to 30 snap rate range, has averaged just 4.67 running back opportunities per game to start the year. Most notably, those represent the missing touches for Najee Harris. Mitchell Trubisky's 2.71 time-to-throw value is a marked difference from Roethlisberger's 2.38 value in the same metric from a year ago, as are Trubisky's 9.1 intended air yards per pass attempt and 21.4 aggression rate, 6th and 3rd in the league, respectively. The problem is no longer the quarterback's lack of arm strength. The problem is the quarterback's slow processing time and poor downfield accuracy. That said, this is still a highly concentrated offense, regularly playing a tight three-man rotation at wide receiver and utilizing tight end Pat Fryermuth heavily in those routes, typically an 80% plus snap rate tight end and in a route almost 80% of dropbacks. Alpha wide receiver Deontay Johnson has managed double-digit targets in 15 of his last 19 games dating back to the start of the last season, including each of the first three games of 2022. His 32.4% team target market share ranks fifth in the league, and he has already seen six deep targets through three games, which ranks third in the league. His 363 total air yards ranks third thus far, and his 36.7% air yard share ranks 10th. That's a lot of numbers to say there are likely better days ahead for the electric wide receiver. Chase Claypool has transitioned to the slow roll out of 11 personnel, seeing 75.5% of his offensive snaps from the slot this season. His modest 8.7 ADOT and poor yards after the catch numbers indicates a role with limited per-target upside, meaning he would need volume in order to provide fantasy value. Rookie George Pickens should continue in a 75-80% snap rate role on the perimeter and currently leads the NFL in ADOT at 18.6. Likeliest Game Flow this contest has a much wider range of outcomes than I initially thought before digging in, and the field is unlikely to fully realize. The combination of pace and elevated pass rates means we should see a greater than league average total number of offensive plays run here, which paves the way for fantasy potential. The massive spread in net DSR for each team also makes it a game of weaknesses versus weaknesses throughout, meaning it could end as the week's lowest scoring game or we could see fireworks should some of the skill shine through. That said, it is likely up to the Jets to dictate any diversion from the likeliest game flow, a fast-paced, low-scoring, grinded-out type game with each offense struggling to find the end zone, leaving expected volume the only true indicator of fantasy potential. As the more dynamic offense, the weaker defense, and the offense with more unknowns surrounding where the production is likeliest to come from. Consider how this game environment would open up if going here this week, covered more in the DFS Plus interpretation, and consider how difficult it might be for either quarterback to end the week as optimal, as in, if going here, it's likely optimal to hold exposure to one-offs or secondary correlated pairings. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. 
The Cardinals at the Panthers kick off Sunday, October 2nd at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson These teams have both been playing with tempo, which gives some hope for potential increased play volume, especially for the Panthers. That extra play volume will likely be necessary in order for this game to get interesting, as both offenses have struggled with efficiency. There are some explosive offensive players who could turn the knob on this game in a hurry. The Panthers' defense works to limit big plays, while the Cardinals' offense has a lot of short area and horizontal tendencies. How Arizona will try to win Arizona has been able to do nothing to generate a running game through three weeks. James Conner is their lead back, and he simply is not an explosive player, while Kyler Murray continues to limit his rushing attempts to only-when-we-absolutely-need-it situations. This, combined with the relative lack of receiving options who can win matchups, and the vanilla and predictable offensive scheme of Cliff Kingsbury, has left the Arizona offense in quite a funk to begin the season. For all of the attention and discussion that the Arizona offense has received since Kingsbury took over, the Cardinals are currently 28th in the league at a meager 4.8 yards per play. As we have discussed before in the NFL Edge, the Cardinals really don't change up much in their approach from a macro level from game to game. Their formations, tempo, and play calling are remarkably consistent from week to week, which leaves very little for us to decipher in our evaluations. They are going to play with pace. They are going to throw the ball somewhat often, but usually not too far down the field. Kyler Murray's average pass attempt is only 6.0 yards downfield. And they are going to rely on Kyler Murray extending plays with his legs to find ways to keep drives alive on third downs. Enter the Panthers, who play a lot of zone and shell-type coverages that are designed to limit big plays and keep the ball in front of them. The Panthers' defense has performed relatively well so far this year, as they are giving up under 20 points per game and are ranked in the top half of the league in Football Outsiders' DVOA metrics. The Panthers are likely to force the ball underneath repeatedly on passing plays, which the Cardinals will gladly accept and attack, and therefore when the Cardinals have the ball, we should expect a lot of third downs that need to be converted, as well as long drives that bleed a lot of the clock. The Cardinals do not appear to have the personnel or creativity that is likely to bust through this Panthers defense in a tough cross-country road matchup. How Carolina will try to win As head coach Matt Rule tries to hold on to his job, the Panthers came up with a big divisional win in Week 3 against the Saints. Christian McCaffrey handled his biggest workload of the season, and the Panthers' offense gained the most yards and ran the most plays that they have all season. Despite that slight improvement, the Panthers still rank 30th in the league in yards per game and 31st in plays per game. This is not a recipe for success or something that they can bank on giving them a chance to stay competitive in games on a weekly basis. If the Panthers are ever going to get their offense going, this might have to be the week. They are at home against the 31st ranked defense by DVOA and 32nd ranked defense by PFF grades. There is also hope that the faster tempo of the Cardinals' offense, combined with their mediocre efficiency, will allow the Panthers' offense, which currently leads the league in situation-neutral pace of play, to have far more volume than they have been able to accumulate to start the year. A good matchup with increased volume? I mean, what more can they ask for? 
When it comes to the how of the Panthers' attack, we should expect Christian McCaffrey to continue his ascension back to the workloads we are used to seeing from him. The Cardinals lead the NFL in blitz rate, so this would be a perfect time for the Panthers to ignite their offense with a healthy dose of targets to CMC out of the backfield. Through three games, CMC has seen four or five targets in every game, numbers that are fine for your average running backs, but this is a player who routinely got eight to ten targets per game when he was at his peak, and the Panthers' offense was operating with some consistency. There is also hope that through the use of play-action passing and the likely focus the defense will place on CMC, Baker Mayfield and the wide receivers can take advantage of the Cardinals' secondary, which ranks dead last in coverage grade and plays a significant amount of man coverage due to their high blitz rate. While we won't necessarily see a crazy aggressive approach from the Panthers, a combination of the good matchup, their fast pace of play, and a focus on their core offensive pieces should lay the groundwork for potential offensive success, at least relative to what they have shown us so far. Likeliest Game Flow This game quietly has the ingredients for offensive fireworks. While the Panthers' offense has struggled and had low play volume thus far, their surprisingly fast pace of play combined with an opponent who plays aggressively should give the Panthers' playmakers opportunities to bust open chunk plays and long touchdowns lending us some hope. On the other side, Cliff Kingsbury's offense has played with some of the fastest tempo in the league during his tenure and also has weapons capable of carrying a game environment to another level. The likeliest game flow here is a close game that ends around the game's expected total, 43 as of Wednesday, due to poor red zone efficiency and lack of scoring. But we would be remiss if we do not consider the outsized upside that this game provides based on all of the factors we have explored and the chances that these teams, who have combined for as many field goals as touchdowns this season, have some positive scoring regression in their future. The Patriots at the Packers kick off Sunday, October 2nd at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Both teams will rely heavily on their duo of talented running backs. Huge tempo concerns here, as the pace of play in this game will be extremely slow on both sides of the ball. The Packers are playing at home with a massive advantage at the most important position in sports. Both defenses are very weak in run defense, offering a glimmer of hope that this game could have elevated scoring generated from efficiency despite the lack of play volume. How New England will try to win The Patriots enter Week 4 with a 1-2 record and without franchise QB Mac Jones, who will be sidelined for an extended period of time with a severe high ankle sprain. After struggling to score points the first two weeks of the season, the Patriots seem to find their footing in Week 3 against the Ravens by gaining 447 total yards on offense and scoring more points, 26, than they had scored in the first two weeks combined, 24. While Jones is far from a superstar at the position, the loss of his game management and toughness will be tough for this offense to overcome as they head on the road to play in a difficult road environment. Replacing Jones will be 36-year-old journeyman QB Brian Hoyer, who has lost his last 11 starts over a multi-year period. The Packers have a very good pass rush and a talented secondary, and are coming off a game where they made an undermanned Bucks offense, led by the GOAT himself, Tom Brady, look incredibly underwhelming. 
Without Jones, the Patriots will likely lean on their running game to an even greater extent than they have so far this season, as they are currently 25th in the league in pass rate over expectation. In their backfield, the Patriots seem to have turned a corner, with Ramondre Stevenson taking over the lead back role after he played 62% of the offensive snaps for the second consecutive week. Stevenson also played nine full drives without ceding a single snap to another running back, as opposed to only five such drives for Damian Harris. Shout out to friend of the site, at Scott Barrett DFB on Twitter for that stat. In this game, however, we can certainly expect to see plenty of work to go around for both running backs, as the name of the game for New England will be to pound the run against Green Bay's run defense, which is currently ranked 32nd in Football Outsiders DVOA and 31st in PFF's run defense grades. When New England does take to the air, we will likely see a lot of play action, misdirection, screens, and quick short area passing as they look to minimize what they ask of Hoyer and keep the game close enough for their running game and defense to have a chance to win it for them in the fourth quarter. How Green Bay Will Try to Win The Packers' offense hasn't been pretty this year, but it has found a way to get the job done each of the last two weeks as the Packers sit at 2-1 and and tied for the division lead. The Packers' offense is finding itself this season, and they appear to have found their formula for the time being by running their offense primarily through their two talented running backs, A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones. After a Week 1 trouncing by the Vikings, Aaron Rodgers reiterated that the Packers need to get their best offensive players on the field and get the ball in the hands of their running backs, something he had also said during the summer. The team has followed suit by attempting to give the ball to Jones and Dillon through carries and targets a combined 70 times on 123 offensive plays the last two weeks, or 57% of their offensive plays. Rookie wide receiver Romeo Dubs rose to the occasion last week to the tune of 73 yards and a touchdown, securing all eight of his targets in a Packers win and appearing to win over the trust of his difficult-to-impress Hall of Fame QB. The Packers continue their trend of recent years of playing at an extremely slow pace, ranking 31st out of 32 teams in situation-neutral pace of play, as Aaron Rodgers runs down the play clock regularly and looks to methodically work the offense down the field. The Packers play their way, and will not up their tempo until they have to, and they should not be pushed to do so in this matchup. The Packers are 21st in the league in pass rate over expectation, with their commitment to their running game and the Patriots' 29th-ranked DVOA run defense. They will almost certainly continue their recent trend of putting the ball in the hands of their backs at a very high rate. Rodgers will certainly take some downfield shots as well against a secondary that was just torched by Lamar Jackson for four touchdown passes in Week 3, but those opportunities will be set up by the emphasis on the running game and building a lead that forces the Patriots to sell out up front. Likeliest Game Flow As implied by the double-digit point spread, the Packers are most likely to control this game. This should be a fast-moving game on the game clock, as both teams are likely to lean so heavily on their running backs and have advantageous matchups against beatable run defenses. The high rush rate for both teams will keep the clock moving, and both teams will also bleed the play clock dry, thus shortening the game and putting a damper on play volume. Consider that a six-play drive of one first down and then a punt, with one incompletion and running the play clock below five seconds on every play, would run approximately four minutes off the game clock before handing the ball to the other team. When you look at it that way, you can see how this game will likely struggle to get going. 
any extended drives, which are the likeliest way these teams score points due to the limited explosive players on both sides, are likely to take six to nine minutes and even then may only end in a field goal attempt. While there are certainly paths to offensive efficiency, it will be a tightrope for these teams to walk with very little margin for error if they are to give this game a chance to exceed expectations. The only real chance for that would be if the Packers are highly efficient early on, and they build a 10-14 to 14 point lead that forces the Patriots to open things up a bit, and also forces the Patriots' defense to sell out against the run, opening up their back end to splash plays from the Packers off play action. The Broncos at the Raiders kick off Sunday, October 2nd at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 45.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Both teams have been extremely disappointing to start the year after big off-season moves were made. The Broncos enter with a 2-1 record thanks to an elite defense and a soft schedule. The Raiders are 0-3 and have lost every game by one score. Neither of these teams has appeared explosive or fast-paced yet this season, but the pieces are there on both sides for games to turn up at any point. How Denver will try to win To call the Broncos' offense disappointing to this point in the season is an insult to disappointments everywhere. I can't recall any team with such high expectations and so many talented offensive players performing and looking this poorly to start the season. There is plenty of blame to go around, but things have looked absolutely abysmal in every area of the game. The Broncos have no rhythm in their running game, their route concepts look jumbled, and Russell Wilson either won't pull the trigger or isn't sure where to go with the ball, resulting in a lot of checkdowns and the 22nd highest average intended air yards on pass attempts among all NFL quarterbacks. The let Russ cook narrative is quickly being put to rest as he has looked anything like the all-pro quarterback that everyone expected to go nuclear once freed from the reins of Pete Carroll. Eli Manning made a joke on Monday Night Football that the Broncos should have given that $235 million to the punter, and that may have been more accurate than any pass we saw Eli throw in the last five years of his career. The Broncos aren't doing themselves any favors either in terms of continuity, as they added Mike Boone to the running back mix in Week 3 and rotated him in with Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon, consistently giving all of them playing time in a nationally televised game. Looking ahead, we have to decide if we think the Broncos will continue doing things how they have been or will look to change things up. Despite how awful they have looked, the Broncos have ridden their defense and a relatively soft schedule through three weeks to a 2-1 record and are currently tied for the AFC West Division lead. Through three weeks, the Broncos are ranked 22nd in pass rate over expectation and 26th in situation neutral pace of play. They are facing a Raiders defense that is middle of the pack in most defensive metrics despite playing a relatively tough schedule of offenses to start the season. The Raiders' defense is not especially strong in any one area, while also not having a specific weakness to attack. This means that teams will usually look to lean on their areas of offensive strength when facing Las Vegas. 
Unfortunately, through three games, it is hard to tell what the Broncos' offensive strength and identity are, and even they look like they aren't quite sure about it. If we want to take an optimistic view of the situation, the Broncos spoke last week about some things with opening the offense up. They hired a specialist to help head coach Nathaniel Hackett with game day decisions, and generally speaking, have a lot of new things going on so it makes some sense that they have had a relatively slow start. Also, if we look at each week they have played so far, we can see clear reasons for things that may have contributed to the slow start. In week one, the Seahawks probably played their best game of the year in the most hostile environment in the league, with a coaching staff that had weeks to prepare for a quarterback who they know better than anyone. In Week 2, the Broncos played a scrappy Texans team and had to play on a short week after their Monday night game, while playing without K.J. Hamler and losing star-wide receiver Jerry Judy to an injury early in the contest. In Week 3, the Broncos faced the 49ers' defense, which currently ranks 3rd in Football Outsider DVOA and is top 5 against both the run and the pass. I'm not saying the Broncos deserve no blame, but things may look a lot more dire right now than they will in a few weeks. This is still a team with a Hall of Fame QB and talented skill players, and they have nowhere to go but up after scoring only three offensive touchdowns, dead last in the NFL, through three weeks. How Las Vegas Will Try to Win Life comes at you fast in the NFL. In his second stint as an NFL head coach, Josh McDaniels has watched his Raiders fall to 0-3 as they have lost one game in overtime after blowing a 20-point halftime lead, and lost the other two games by a combined 7 points. The Raiders now return home to face the Broncos, the team McDaniels coached in his previous head coaching opportunity. This is a huge game for the Raiders, as they head to Kansas City to play the Chiefs next week, and a home loss here could very well have them staring at an 0-5 start to a season that they entered with high hopes after a 2021 playoff berth and some high-profile off-season acquisitions. The Raiders have a tough task against a Broncos defense that grades well across the board in defensive metrics against both the run and the pass. As with their defense, the Raiders' offense has performed at a middling level in most areas, with their offensive line being best suited for run blocking, but their skill players and scheme being best suited for a pass-heavy attack. After a dominant Week 1 performance, Devontae Adams has only 7 receptions for 48 yards over the last two weeks. While Adams has found the end zone in every game so far this season, if the Raiders are going to get back on track, they must find ways to get Adams consistently involved in the offense the same way the Packers used to. Perhaps the Week 3 breakout game for wide receiver Mack Hollins will help open things up for Adams and divert some defensive attention away from him, while the continued absence of Hunter Renfro in the slot may allow the Raiders to get more creative with moving Adams around formations to create mismatches and scheme him open. This should absolutely be a priority against a very good defense that is unlikely to get beat on individual matchups very often. Likeliest Game Flow There are tempo and efficiency concerns on both sides of the ball here, which is reflected in this game's modest total of 45.5 points as of Thursday morning. Both teams play balanced and relatively methodical. 
From what we have seen so far this year, the Broncos' offense is too disjointed and slow-paced to spark things, and the Broncos' defense is too solid to get beat consistently and force the offense to turn things up. Through three weeks, we have yet to see a team score 20-plus points in a Broncos game. All of that being said, there is some hope here for these offenses to come closer to preseason expectations than they have so far this year, as the Raiders' offense is the best that the Broncos have faced, and the Broncos' offense, as explored earlier, might be in their best position to succeed so far this season. We are still less than 20% of the way through the season, so it is quite early to completely abandon hope on teams with proven NFL commodities that many sharp people thought highly of entering the season. Week 4 may be a breaking point for both the Broncos offense and the Raiders team as a whole if they are going to get things turned around before it's too late.